Here we are for our newest episode of War on the Rocks podcast series, and I'm here with uh, four very, very interesting gentlemen. I have uh, Stanley Orman, who is a former Undersecretary of State in the UK government, uh, master of all things nuclear and Cold War. Uh, he was there and he did it, and he'll tell you a bit more about that later. We have Bob Zarate, director, uh, policy director at the Foreign, uh, Foreign Policy Initiative. We have Bill Rosenau, our uh, most loyal uh, guest and participant in these podcasts at the Center for Naval Analysis, where he's a senior analyst, and we have defense analyst Bridge Colby here with us. And uh, we're going to be talking mostly about all things nuclear, but I imagine just like all of our other podcasts, it's going to stem into uh, stem into other topics. And uh, when we were sort of planning out what we were going to talk about today, uh, Bridge remarked that he wanted to talk about how the Cold War was the good old days when it came to nuclear strategy. <laughs> Slightly it's, exactly. it's sort of a funny thing to say. Uh, when we were facing, you know, an existential threat. But what, what did you mean by that? Well, uh, obviously I was joking a little bit, but... Um, just a little bit. Uh, yeah, just, just a little bit. There's, a, there's definitely some, a lot of truth uh, in, in that there was a lot of wisdom in the Cold War, I suppose. Um, but I, I think the idea for me, uh, for this podcast uh, that I suggested to you, um, was uh, to bring together people who really appreciated the Cold War, have marinated in the Cold War, so to speak. Uh, people who, who, who appreciate not just the, the dry text, but the, um, the cocktail selection at a Santa Monica cocktail party circa 1957. And I, I knew that the two men in particular came to mind, uh, Bill Rosenau, uh, who is a Herman Kahn aficionado, an expert on the civil defense program, uh, and many other uh, aspects of the uh, uh, strategic uh, Cold War, and then Bob Zarati, who in some ways has been my Sherpa uh, through through the uh, the Cold War uh, uh, learning process, and uh, is an expert on Albert Wolstetter, and also an, an aficionado of uh, of the, the the sort of dialectics of Cold War nuclear strategy. Um, and I just just met Mr. Orman, but uh, uh, he sounds like he was actually contributed something as opposed to being merely an, an observer. He was actually part of the problem. He was part of the problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I thought we'd just, you know, get together, talk talk nukes, uh, not tack nukes, talk nukes, um, and, uh, and, and you know, reminisce uh, for, those, for those of us who weren't there, you know. Quasi-reminisce, and for you, maybe reminisce for real. Something that you cannot this underestimate. And that is, well, my accent's so different from the rest yeah. of the <laughs> And that is, all our leading politicians mm -hmm. now, throughout mm -hmm. the world, grew up under MAD, mm -hmm. Mutual Assured Destruction. And many of them were terrified of losing that Mutual Assured Destruction. Mm -hmm. And make no mistake about it, when Bush withdrew from the ABM Treaty, many of them were terrified mm -hmm because they had grown up so believing that MAD was the concept that kept us all safe. I mean, my, I've always interpreted it that try, threatening to kill millions of people and destroy cities was okay, but threatening to kill missiles was unacceptable, mm -hmm. so we had an ABM treaty. A cynical outlook, mm -hmm. but nonetheless, when you think about it, absolutely true. Mm -hmm. Because they brought in a treaty specifically to preclude destroying the missiles. Yeah. Well, Stanley, why don't you tell tell uh, tell us a bit more about what you were up to during the Cold War? I mean, you started working for the the Crown in the I, 60s. And yes, when I went to Aldermaston, Aldermaston had recently signed the 1958 agreement. Could you tell our, our listeners what that is? 
Order Marston is the uh, atomic weapon was the atomic weapons research establishment, which is now renamed the atomic weapons establishment. They took out that naughty word research <laughs> <laughs> because we know everything. That's right. Yeah, I mean, it's as stupid as as can be. But nonetheless, when I was there, it was EWRE, which meant something. Uh, there's been a 1958 agreement signed between America and the UK to exchange nuclear warhead information. And our first warheads were based on US designs. So the US gave us the outline of a design, but we anglicised it. And I came in um, in 1961, joined AWRE as a scientific officer, a materials specialist at that time. And my task was to try and understand why... There were so many corrosive reactions going on inside a warhead. Now, if you think about it, there's a lot of very energetic materials inside a warhead. Besides the high explosive, you've got uranium, you've got plutonium, you've got tritium, and all sorts of other materials. And there was a period when some warheads of both designs had to be evacuated i.e. the air sucked out and replaced with new environment every two weeks because otherwise they were having troubles. And I made my name by un under understanding what reactions were actually going on hmm. and how you could prevent them. Hmm. Um, and when it was finally accepted that I got it right and instituted, um, it was then revealed that some... 75% of the US stockpile would not have functioned as nuclear wow. devices at that time. Wow. But they Fortunately, we had a lot they, of them. They, <laughs> they instituted my uh, <laughs> remedies. and uh, we The US did as well. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Hmm. yeah. Um, Stanley, can I ask you a question <laughs> about, about the uh, Aldermaston at the time? So what was the... Um, what was the esprit de corps like? What was the atmosphere like? Was it a sense of, uh, you know, huge national purpose that... We, we, we were at the vanguard of, uh, of defense and protecting the... Absolutely. The so it wasn't... So beyond just the, even the, the technical challenges, there was a... Is it fair to it say was, there was a... Uh, you, you felt a pride in being able to work there. Um, there were the so-called order master marches led by what later became the leaders of the Labour government. <laughs> 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 the campaign for disarmament. That's right. A very interesting experience. But what I found fascinating, there was a, an election in 1964, I think it was, and the Labour Party gained the uh, government. And Wilson took over. And there was tremendous consternation of what was going to happen mm. within Aldermaston. Mm. Now, they didn't want to take the dramatic decision of closing it all because once you become Prime Minister and you find that mm. having a nuclear device <laughs> gives you a seat at every table. Mm -hmm. So, they asked Aldermaston to start helping industry because we developed lots of techniques which could help and I got very involved in that. One, because of my corrosion expertise, I proposed that we set up a commission to um, examine the cost of corrosion to the country as a whole, because corrosion was 
always added as an afterthought to any design. Mm. It was never integrated in the design. Uh, this proposal was taken up. A very senior committee with a Cambridge professor as the chairman and members of the House of Lords and so on. And because I'd suggested it, I was head of the secretariat, <laughs> <laughs> which meant I did all the work right, right. <laughs> and the committee met uh, monthly. But uh, I was given leave of absence for a year and a half, roughly, to, to conduct this study. Mm. We showed that there was a tremendous cost to the nation at that time and very significant potential savings if corrosion information was made more available, etc., mm. etc. Et uh, our report was issued one week after there'd been a change of government and the Tories came in. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the report vanished into a filing cabinet and never went anywhere. But it was a very interesting experience for me, meeting many... I was in my early 30s, mm. meeting ministers and... Mm. and so by your early 30s, you had figured out how to save the British and American nuclear arsenal. <laughs> yes. Well, I yeah. feel very inadequate. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't get a bonus for doing it. I haven't even figured out how to make my bed. It's very so, interesting. I mean, because yeah. because you, so Harold Wilson comes in and signs the various uh, mm -hmm. things that go into the, well, no submarines then, but um, and wow, and and that was know, way before the submarines. It was way before the submarines. Yeah. I was just I was getting ahead of myself. Um, but you know, the thought of Britain at that point saying, uh, "Well, we're giving up this." Probably wasn't called a deterrent at that point, but mm -hmm. we're giving up these. Uh, these weapons. That's right. Even though Wilson was, you know, certainly on the political left, and there were people much farther to the left, and there was very much. Been in, so left. But, but the idea of like, well, once having it, we're we're not giving this up. We 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 had a lot of hassle with the Americans to get to the point where we yeah. are right now, okay. and and to have a seat at the top table. Wasn't it uh, Bevan that said? Um, we're going to have it. We're going to put a big Union Jack on it, or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> that was, was before my time. Yeah. <laughs> But it was a fascinating period. And the same thing the, um, also on the diversification. I, was, I used to go around lecturing on my corrosion expertise at various conferences. And at one of these, I was seated next to a fellow at luncheon, and I said to him, where are you from? And he said, Department of Health. And I said, what the heck are you doing at a corrosion conference? And he said, well, we have tremendous problems with the failure of implants in the body, metal implants. And I said, well, perfectly natural that you should have problems because what, what are you doing in terms of the stress corrosion or the corrosion fatigue, which is inevitably going to happen? And he said, what are you talking about? And I said, you better come and see me. <laughs> he came to see me. Within about two weeks, I got a substantial grant from the Department of Health to look at implant failures in the body. We went round to all the top orthopaedic surgeons and we said, uh, can we see some implants to see what, failed implants, see what's gone wrong? And they said, we don't have any. I said, but you're the orthopaedic surgeon. <laughs> they said, well, we have an agreement with the implant manufacturers. If any fail, we send them back and they replace them free of charge. Making these people go and, through. And seriously, there wasn't one available for us to look at. And we went back to the Department of Health and said, hey, <laughs> we've got to get a change here. We did get 
an agreement that they would pay for the replacements and we'd get them. And of course we found, yes, there, were, there was corrosion fatigue, there was stress corrosion, and a lot of it was the design of the implant, the way it was inserted, um, operative techniques, and we got involved in all these aspects. And there's a funny story attached to this because hip Im implants were fairly new at that time and were not well designed. Because I had engineers as well as material scientists, we got together with them and helped design. We said, you've got to change over to titanium. And titanium hips are now the standard. And just to add to the fun, Three and a half years ago, I fell down a flight of stairs, broke my hip, and was told the next day by a surgeon, you need an operation, and he said, I'll tell you what you're going to put in. Well, we're going to put in. I said, I know exactly what you're going to put in, but it's going to be titanium. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, I designed a titanium hip. I want a titanium <laughs> hip. Confidence. <laughs> I'm not leaving here without it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you were and, able to benefit what, from and that's that what I got. part so of your... It yeah. took about 45 years, but I benefited from yeah. that respect. Well, I think, I think the thing that sort of, um, you know, that, 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 that I think you know, draws us to this, to this particular facet of the nuclear, you know, sort of strategy is, is that it's this thing, it's this... Uh, it's this sort of incredible uh, concentration of brain power, uh, you know, uh, sort of focused on questions of the most pressing national and international importance by, you know, an incredibly creative and plastic field. I mean, with the advent of the atomic weapon, um, you know, in 1945, there's, there's immediately an understanding that, uh, you know, atomic weapons have, have changed international politics have changed warfare, and Bob, you and I have talked about this a lot over the years. You know, initially there's Bernard Brody's kind of classic, you know, the absolute weapon, sort of everything's strategy is dead, but then there's this sort of realization over time that actually, you know, a lot can happen under the nuclear shadow, and I've, I've been, uh, you know, impressed with uh, the work of a guy named Frank Gavin, um, also Fred Kemp, and others who've, who've been looking at how Khrushchev, for instance, tried to manipulate uh, you know, sort of bluff and uh, and uh, blackmail and the game of chicken. Uh, you know, over Berlin, in the most dramatic circumstances leading up to this Cuban Missile Crisis. But I think what, we, what we're all impressed with, you know, it's just the 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 brain power and this. You know, it, it's not just impressive from a historical or kind of antiquarian perspective. But if you you know if you these these people were thinking through the very kind of rudiments, the essence of strategy. Um, you know, if you read Tom Schelling today, Herman Kahn today. You know, it's just as analytically rich and perceptive as it was. You know, it, they were facing a more extreme version of problems that we, you know, we're on the same spectrum today, I think. And, and you know, people, you know, who are, who are a bit younger in their 30s, like, like Bob and I are, you know, you learn just as much, and I think you can apply it, apply it to problems today uh, just, as, just as well. And, you know, they're really interesting guys, too. I mean, a guy like... You know, Albert Wolstetter, his wife was writing, you know, Bernard Brody's wife was writing biographies of Thomas Jefferson. Fawn Brody. Fawn Brody, right? I mean, psychiatry, you know, Daniel Ellsberg, I mean, a classic example. Got a few issues, you know. But really interesting people, too. I mean, real brains. Well, and and I, I think, I mean, it's interesting you brought it back to 1945, because yeah. here is the... Um, on this playing field, it, it, it's, the, it's, it's one in which the military has no expertise. Yeah. 
right? It's it's it, there's an entree point for civilian defense intellectuals because no, right. well, I mean, th- I think Herman Kahn Herman made Kahn, that yeah. crack at right. one point. I, you know, I, I've fought He's, as many nuclear wars right. as you, as right. you have. <laughs> And right. that's and, and I think that was essential mm-hmm. because there, there was no there was wars of the brain. The wars of the brain. Yeah, exactly. And you know the the generals could argue the generals and the colonels could argue the tactics and the delivery and right. a bunch of other things. But uh, straight up in terms of policy, yeah. uh, there's no question that there, 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 the, the civilians had as much ground to go on, and particularly when we had this pretty impressive. Cast of characters, right? Concentrated right. around a few institutions. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, really uh, concentrated at the time, right? Sure, sure. but uh, to add to that, the World, World War II had uh, been a war in which science and engineering played mm-hmm. such a profound role. Yeah. Right. Um, I guess you guys have probably read that book, The Wizard War, mm-hmm. um, which talks mm-hmm. about all, all. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. um, and, and this sort of brings us to the Rand Corporation, right. which I think to this day is is it's, it's an organization that there have been histories about, but. It's it's something that I hope historians will continue to wrangle with because uh, not every story that needs to be told has been told about the Rand Corporation. But it was formed formed as Project Rand in 1947, I believe, by the Army Air Forces, the predecessor to the U.S. Air Force, and uh, it ended up pulling in, I, I would say, Nobel uh, Prize class intellects um, into that organization. They were you know, it, the Rand Corporation was originally. Uh, well, well, eventually it was headquartered in Santa Monica, more or less on the beach, <laughs> an idyllic location uh, compared to what many you know, people would have had to done before in terms of military research. And it, it drew, uh, whether you're talking about economics, uh, political science, sociology, um, engineering, uh, you had people like Bruno Augenstein, who was mm-hmm. a sort of the father of the uh, IC, one of the fathers of the ICBM. Mm-hmm. Uh, modern satellites were... Satellites, yeah. Sorry. Um, Johnny von Neumann, right? Was there yeah, John, yeah, the game theorists like mm-hmm. von Neumann, mathematicians, mm-hmm. uh, Williams. Um, Dr. Orman talked about sort of civilian spinoff uh, from some of this stuff. Uh, there was an engineer there named Paul Barron uh, who came up with an idea called uh, hot potato routing. The idea was if, if communication lines get disrupted, how do you move from something that's a, a distributed network, in, uh, a distributed, uh, sorry, decentralized network into a distributed network? And, and Barron's idea of hot potato routing became packets, packet switching we had today, a, a very fundamental concept to the internet. Right. And, right. and so, uh, yeah, just... Uh, you but also it's driven by, in a sense, the need to deal with the Soviet threat, but also to deal in particular with the introduction of the atomic weapon right. and the sort of the radical change that this had on society. And I mean, I think this, Bill, you and I have talked about this before, right, that, I mean, the, the challenge of the atomic bomb change society. I mean, you know, the interstate is obviously one that people kind of point, you know, that you could land B-52s on the interstate. Just, just to add that, though, yeah. it, you had this large sort of potentially, you know, world historical existential problem, but you, you know, what was also fascinating is that to actually deal with this problem, you had to solve it a lot of sort of operational, yeah, right. very, even what might seem like quotidian sort yeah. of problems. And, and uh, anyways, I didn't mean to cut Bill off, but no, no. that's what's fascinating that at, at multiple levels, and, and, and I'll just close with that. That's kind of what I think why Albert Wolstetter thrived in that environment. A lot of the things that we take for granted today, such as the the, the distinction between... Can you tell our listeners who he was? Sure. Albert Wolstetter was uh, New York born, born in 1913. We're actually in the 100th year of his uh, anniversary of his birth. Uh, he was New York born... Um, Bob's holding a vigil. A little, uh, I will be. December 19th. There will be a vigil in, in Washington. Uh, uh, yeah, where would he want his in, vigil in, to be? It'll be in New York City. I'm yeah, forgetting now the name of the neighborhood. Yeah, New York. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, it'll be a La Grande Way or something. Yeah, right, right. And, and what uh, they close. used to call... La Grande Way, close? What? Yeah. 
The restaurant on 76th Street, or you're thinking of Le Cove Basque, maybe. No, no, anyway. <laughs> so, well, long story short, Will Sutter was... Will liked them both. Albert and Roberta were both, I would say, pioneering thinkers of strategy in the nuclear age. Albert would later come to say he didn't want to be thought of as, as purely a nuclear strategist because he thought of strategy generally. But concepts such as first strike and sec second strike capability, that actually is a phrase he coined in the mid-1950s. Bernard Brody had understood the basic idea of it, but the terminology and actually operational implementation came from, from Albert's studies at the Rand Corporation. But what's interesting, to Bridges' earlier point, Albert was originally trained in, in things as uh, far, far away from nuclear strategy is, is mathematical logic, philosophy of science. Um, he, he was a, a student of, of Quine, uh, huh. Quine traveling to Harvard that. actually to study under him. And then later during World War, uh, during the Depression, he, he interned under Meyer Shapiro, uh, the, the art historian hmm. um, at, at Columbia. Man of many interests. As, he was. He, he actually, he was the Omo Universale, I think is what the town is called. <laughs> Universal man. And... Um, and then and Bob's a fan. Uh, Let's be I, honest. I, 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 I become more critical. Have you written much about him? Or? I, I actually wrote a book. Oh, wow. Uh, See, uh, I should read your bio more to, closely. To quote, uh, to quote Jimmy Stewart in the in the movie Rope, it was one of those books that you know, big words, small print, no sales. Um, but it was a book about the Wolfsetters. And and uh, the, the last sort of interesting anecdote about before Albert entering the nuclear the realm of nuclear strategies, he worked at a company called uh, the General Panel Corporation. And this was a, a company after the well, after World War II. They were trying to use designs by Conrad Voxman and Walter Gropius, two Bauhaus architects, to build what was called the packaged house. And it, it was supposed to help meet the post-war housing boom. Huh. It was a tremendous disaster because uh, I believe it was Voxman in particular who wanted to use hyper-modern uh, means of, of constructing materials. He actually wanted to use a microwave to heat things. Albert had one of the first microwave hamburgers, and he said it was terrible. Um, and, but Albert sort of learned how to do a lot of these sort of industrial operational things. So, so mm -hmm. to think not just about the sort of abstract, how does nuclear war work, but he, he would later, uh, you know, working with, for what would become the Air Force and Strategic Command, Air Command, think about how do, how do these bombers actually operate? How do you base them? How do you deal with refueling? How do you deal with protection? The sort of nitty-gritty details, which, right. and right. it was sort of this right. inductive, deductive right. uh, sort of style thing. And, and, and maybe that was a place where Rand could uh, also inject itself and, and, and have the extra value because it's founded by engineers, right. Right? right? All these sort of what became the social science department and other things, that's all fine. Physicists and engineers, yeah. yeah. And, mm -hmm. it, yeah. But you have this yeah. basis of, you know, Hardcore, rational, empirical systems, system, right. okay. all that stuff. So to draw on, so it's not just you know the pure theorizing, but, but you the, can. These are guys who can actually make the trains run. Right. But at the end of the day, this was all semi-academic because since Hiroshima, there's been nothing. But the, I think the point that that <laughs> I think he I does think, a lot. Yeah, of I think stuff. I think that, you know actually there's a line from Neil Sheehan's book on on. General Schriever, the Air Force, the kind of Air Force guy who was, was really the a pioneer, you know, the driver behind the the, the creation of the intercontinental ballistic that's missile. Right. Um, that that's it's a quote quotation from General Hap Arnold, the commander of Army, the Army Air Forces in World War II, and he says, "I guess the First World War would be won by was won by brawn, the Second World War by, I think, industrial might or something, but the Third World War will be won by brains." And there's a, there's a similar line that's in. Um, that's in that book of uh, uh, Brussels, the, uh, the the Great Cold War, which is that that uh, you know you won not, uh, the Soviet says you won not 
not because of your tanks, but because of your think tanks. Now that obviously is flattering ourselves here as a bunch of think tankers looking, looking to. Well, that must be know. true. It must be true, obviously. But but, but I mean, a lot of people blame the uh, last two wars on think tanks as well. So yeah, we shouldn't right, exactly, right. right. So you could do you could do you could do a bad job too. But I think the the point is just that there was, you know, the the guys around. I mean, Schlesinger is a great example. I mean, the whole development of of you know the kind of U.S. nuclear strategy, particularly once Kennedy gets into office. And you get people like uh, you know Entoben and Hitch and uh, uh, Kaufman, 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 of course, you know Schlesinger, uh, and and it's and it's basically a constant uh, stream, really. Uh, and then you know in Reagan, you've got a Clay and people like that who are Rand veterans. Um, people, you know, now there's a question of how much SAC and the actual nuclear planners really really implemented, and that's an interesting story in in and of itself. But but certainly from Kennedy on. Uh, you know, and Kissinger. Kissinger was was Kissinger was not a a well, Randy, a but, but he was a, well, but but he was he was part of this whole nuclear strategy discussion through things like the Council on Foreign Relations, the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. He's yeah. one who's saying right. that he supports global zero. Well, he says I mean, it sometimes. A, sometimes he says he's it. a he's a. I don't want to say fair weather. He, fair weather. He 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 sometimes supports the global zero right. thing. He sometimes doesn't. And then he writes a thing with Scowcroft saying the, the whole stability con- should the be. The whole concept is crazy. Yeah. Well, well, it's a, it's something I've never really understood. Uh, I, I do want to actually get back to global zero. Let's talk. Sure. But first, I want to hear. I want to hear why Herman Kahn matters. We've heard about yeah. Wolfsteader matters. Why Herman Kahn matters? We got to get to Shelling at some point because yeah, because Shelling everybody Schelling has their the favorite. Shelling is my guy in, in this in this day and age. I mean, I, you know, it'd be interesting. Well, and I'll defer to you, um, Bob. I mean, you know, Volstetter, uh, to go and, and, and reread Volstetter could be interesting. Roberta, you know, uh, you know, her Pearl Harbor uh, book is still, you know, I think is still extremely valuable and useful. They had, when I worked on this area on the President's Commission on Intelligence on, on Iraq, that was, uh, the chair has recommended that we read uh, Roberta's book. So that I mean that that stands the test of time. Mm-hmm. I mean, Khan is a is a kind of a tougher sell. Uh, he he's he he, in some ways he's an outsider to all this because mm. he, I mean he's he's physically an outsider. Mm. He's his sister is accused of being communist, and his oh, and, uh, well, and his, yeah, and his sort of academic career got di- sort of disrailed or derailed, and he's at Rand, um, and he made himself. Uh, Really, in a fairly short period of time, very, very unpopular, mostly with the Air Force, because mm-hmm. he was a believer in civil defense, which is something that, you know, in this day and age, I suppose after nine eleven, we did have a a renewed interest in this in this whole notion. I actually saw an advertisement for a civil defense thing in the gym today. I was shocked. <laughs> so I was like, these people are staying alive, you know. <laughs> Let's see, let, let, why don't you give a little summation for our listeners of what this concept was? Well, I mean, the, the the concept which, you know, had this inherent flaw, right, once hydrogen weapons are invented, um, is the idea, well, I mean, it's it, it's complicated. I mean, there are a couple of things. I mean, it, it was really a sort of... Fallout shelters, right? I mean, well, it was fallout shelters, but it had, it had been a World War II product of civil defense, and that whole concept of kind of population protection had, had, had become part of policy. Um, you know, atomic bombs and then nuclear. Well, this will have an effect maybe on the on the calculations in terms of deterrence. If you can protect your population, mm-hmm. uh, you might be more willing to to wage this war, to sustain this war. You can presumably absorb more of the incoming. Um, 
was the, known as passive defense. Right. Passive but defense. it was it was exactly. a big it was a big passive thing. They did the Gaither committee, and I mean, by my it, mother was growing up in you know Michigan. It was like you know hiding under your desk. desk. My, and, yeah, which would do no, a lot, my, my, my parents' house. Yeah. I mean, right. Well, we second house, but. It was a fallout shelter, which right. my father converted into a wine cellar, which I think was a pretty good reuse of. <laughs> Absolutely. Very but, apropos for what we're doing. I mean, it's fascinating about civil defense because, so Khan, the Air Force hates it because they don't, they don't. They want to spend do. money on missiles. Absolutely. Yeah, it's all offense. Offense, yeah. Defense is, is worthless. Passive defense is mainly psychological. You're telling the population you can do something. That's why you couldn't. Yeah. Right. Well, well, especially well, once well, hydrogen bombs, right? Well, once hydrogen bombs, and, and so especially Fallout is number. Fallout is a pretty minor, and that's how it eventually became sold as protection against Fallout, because you couldn't protect against blast. There's Correct. absolutely no way yeah. they're dropping the big one yeah. over the city. Uh, the blast is going to do what it is. Fallout. Although, can I can I interject yeah. here? This is a, a sort of a, I think on point, but it's a, I was I was I actually visited the the the. the Place where the U.S. Nevada nuclear test yeah. site, yeah. yeah. And one of the things that's interesting is now, now in the world of the early 1960s, when we were talking multi-megaton weapons in the thousands potentially being used, different story. But one of the things is that I actually think in the popular imagination, the power of nuclear weapons is sometimes exaggerated. And this is kind of a Wolstead Wolstetter type point, which is we think of nuclear weapons as the absolute weapon, but but that's not necessarily the case. They they can be used in ways that are that are far less than total. I mean, for instance, Hiroshima is a, is imprinted on our memory, but it's important to remember that Hiroshima was a wooden city, and is and is actually built in a bowl that kind of uh, but also much smaller and device. it's a smaller target. It, well, it's a smaller also device. A smaller device. But but, the, but and these guys probably know better than I. But 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 even with larger weapons, the the um, the potency of particularly a blast falls off asymptotically. So actually, it, you're just you're you don't even need to explain that one for listeners. Explain that word for me because I've no. No, no, because in the sense that if you go up with blast, it, 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 with with say Hiroshima weapon was a ten to fifteen kiloton weapon, I think. But if you go up with a, a megaton weapon, it's not whatever a hundred times wider in its. It's effect. not a linear exactly a linear thing. Yeah. So 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 actually, you know, if you go through the the some of the places where they've done testing, you, you, you know, it's not like everything gets vaporized. Uh, for instance, right. Lawrence Livermore released a report on what a like a twenty kiloton weapon would do in downtown DC, and I live in Dupont Circle, and my I, I would be able to survive the blast. Probably. You may have, mm. you may have visited the nuclear test yeah. site. I actually poop things off. Let's hear about that. And all the stuff that was done on the nuclear test site mm. were were test designs with very low yields, deliberately. But you can estimate what was happening. The, the really fascinating thing about that nuclear test site is they were heavily instrumented designs yeah. which were put down, usually, what, uh, almost a mile underground. But there, were, there was cable coming all the way up. Now, when you detonate that nuclear weapon, you vaporize everything. But the beauty of the design is such that the signal runs up that cable somewhat faster than it vaporizes. <laughs> so you actually get a signal. Before it all gets blown Before up. it's all gone. Yeah. And it's incredible. And now no, it's amazing. We, we put down, when I say we, Americans and British, right. put down in that hole the most advanced and sophisticated monitoring devices that were yet available. And blew them up. So, yeah. <laughs> so I, and blew them up. They went. 
but we also used in there, drilled into the mountain side, we did tests to see precisely what would happen on the two aspects of a missile. One is the blast effect, mm. the other is the instantaneous ones, which are the gamma and x-rays mm. that come off. And it was an amazing design because you drilled into the mountain side and then you had giant doors which would close and they were closing as the weapon was detonated such that your x-rays and your gamma rays came through but they closed in time to cut off the blast. That's remarkable. Mm -hmm. so Must have been big doors. Uh, enormous. Enormous. So that, well, that, but that, that shows itself that actually things could right, a, a set of doors could actually. Well, that's right. right. That's right. You could, do, yeah. But I mean, they were limited. But, I mean, I think I, but, but the whole point is, this was to design to understand what happened when a nuclear burst came through in a vacuum, right, in space, and what did that do to something in the in the in space, and why was that done? because the Soviet nuclear defences relied on nuclear weapons right. Right, to try and satellite, uh, try and... Well, ours did too for a while, until... Yours lasted for about uh, a two years, years yeah, that's yeah, right, 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 maximum. That's right. But the Soviets have still got them. Yeah. And the really mm -hmm. interesting thing is that what they do is provide blackout and redout for all their own sensors. Yeah. So they black them out. And that's why... I don't think our, 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 our officers don't seem too, too concerned about penetrating those uh, weapons, but uh, maybe they're... But, well, because you had a significant number. For the UK, that represented, mm. that represented death, and that's why we introduced something called Chevaline, which was a very heavily penetrated, and I was the chief engineer huh. oh, for the development of that of Tell that us system. about that. Oh, yeah. Well, um, the, inter the interesting thing is... That was introduced by a Labour government hmm. under Wilson. But it was so secret at the time that only five members of the cabinet wow. knew that this programme was going on. So Britain um, was more focused on, on penetration aids because than, you had fewer. Because we had, we had four boats. And we could only guarantee to keep one at sea right. at a time. So which meant you had, yeah. you had 16 missiles. How do you defeat 100 ABMs right. with 16 missiles? My predecessor, who ended up as the director of Aldermaston, had designed a beautifully designed unaided system in which we could present the Soviets with multiple possible targets mm -hmm. from each system, each one system. And it was very interesting when Gorbachev later took over and came to visit Margaret Thatcher, mm -hmm. he was interested in how we had replaced three warheads mm -hmm. on uh, Polaris A3 mm -hmm. with six warheads. <laughs> and in fact, we'd actually reduced it to two yeah. And the rest were all the penades, but it showed yeah. that the huh. Soviets, although they monitored our tests right. and did everything, they couldn't determine what they we couldn't were. determine what we were doing. Interesting. Which Let's, was very interesting. Let's um, take a quick break to talk about what we're all having a drink, and uh, I'm going to start with Bill because uh, we'll start with the most predictable. <laughs> yeah, it's the most predictable. It's, it, it, it's for, our, for our loyal listeners. You know what Bill's drinking it, already? It, it, it's an old friend. Um, 
coming over from Blighty, uh, from Britain. Um, some merchant bankers <laughs> 20 years ago <laughs> revived the Plymouth Distillery, uh, Big Copper Pot. Uh, I love their product. This stuff is. Uh, You're a man of refined taste, so. Thank uh, you. you know, except I don't like gin, but. You know. Well, it's true. We can, we can change that. We can change gin, it. I like gin martinis. I don't mm. like gin otherwise. Mm. Yeah, I don't like it otherwise either. Yeah. It's the Plymouth martini. Uh, bone dry, twist. And uh, this stuff, uh, wow. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to the it's rest of the evening. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Bob? Uh, I'm having a sea breeze. Uh, I only use uh, uh, ocean spray, cranberry juice. No, no, I'm actually having Glenlivet 12. uh, And, you know, it's just a a standard drink. Um, I'd like to say that. It's not so standard. I'd like to say it was uh, um, Albert Wilson's favorite drink. But that's not not true. What was his favorite drink? You know, actually, he. he, Coors Light. No, sorry. no, no. He, he was really into into whiskeys, different scotches, that sort of thing. And Albert was never n- nothing was ever simple with him. And if you wanted to go drink scotch with him, you would see his collection, and, and he would regale you and, and potentially bore you I'd with the details. Yeah, yeah, I'd no, yeah. You want, yes, if you if you enjoyed if you enjoyed, if you enjoyed uh, minutia, and pure, yeah, pure moats, yes. Yeah, he was he was a, a, an absolute athlete. His brother, who sensible fellow, he was. His brother, who uh, just on a quick side note, his brother uh, Charles Wolstetter, after whom the the Wolstetter Center at AEI, that uh, auditorium, oh. was named. Not it's not named after Albert. Oh, Charles Wolstetter uh, founded Continental Telephone, which later became MCI. Mm-hmm. Wow, today, really? Which is now today, I believe, Verizon. Is that correct? Yeah. I don't know. Um, and and wow. so. Uh, um, one of the things. One of the things. Oh yeah, they they did. There was there was brotherly rivalry, but one of the interesting things that that Charles did was he bought a winery in uh, in, in France, <laughs> and they tried to uh, to actually have a Wolstetter. It was called something like Wolstetter Domain. I can't remember the name, <laughs> but apparently it was uh, not good wine. Um, and, and they ended up uh, Charles ended up selling it. But so Wolstetter's favorites. That makes wine and scotch. Grape and grain. Actually, I think that's okay. If you start with one, you end with the other. Right. I, I'm, uh, Just don't start so with tequila. That was what Chris Richards yeah. used to do. Yeah. But so Wolstetter's drink, favorite drink, was not his own wine, is what you're trying to say. It's certainly not his, not his brother's uh, wine. Not his brother's, his brother's wine. wine, yeah. Because he had some, I mean, Wolstetter was known for his very, uh, what's the word? Lucullan? I don't know. I don't know. His, 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 his extravagant taste. Yes. Uh, refined taste, but he couldn't have done that on his yeah, ranch salary. His presumably, presumably, his brother. Uh, I've never been able to nail that down, but I've always. I think it stands. Those are the kind reason. of things that are supposed to yeah. be income tax evasion. Yeah, uh, no, uh, I'm not. Not that I'm accusing him. Um, yeah, Bridge. What are you drinking? I'm having a uh, uh, a glass of uh, Bordeaux from uh, Medoc. Uh, so not 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 quite as potent as the as my predecessors, but uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a fan. So that's good. I'm. Uh, uh, I'm having Lagavulin 16, which is a uh, bottle in my office, most important thing in my office currently. <laughs> and Stanley? I asked for a uh, Sam Adams, and he didn't have a Sam Adams, so I got a flying dog on top. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is a local brew. So it's local brew. So yeah. it's, it's fine. Good. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I've got to say, the, the, the Jefferson Hotel, Fantastic. they make a mean martini. Oh, yeah. Before our podcast started, the uh, waiter said, so I asked him, I said, can you, can you stir it rather than shake it? I mean, we all like that sound, but for the true hardcore martini types, the shaking, it's too much dilution. And well, there's a great... Uh, but he said, uh, oh, no, with, with Plymouth, we, we always stir. 
which I, I thought mean, was there's a great nice line in uh, yeah, like uh, there's a great West Wing West Wing episode wait is that sorry those two words once again sorry uh, <laughs> no it's a great West Wing episode where President Bartlett is uh, making fun of James Bond for ordering shaken not stirred yeah. because he's basically ordering a watered down martini and he explains the special spoon that's used to stir him. Yeah. <laughs> he's Sheen ordering a, mod- right. a watered down martini and being snooty about it is what he says. You know, Martin Sheen's like a broken clock. Exactly. <laughs> he's Once, right. He's right. Twice, every twice, every twice, twice, twice right. The guy is going to be right and he is right about it. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a great show. Whatever mm-hmm. politics, I think you can enjoy the show. Yeah, I'm maybe more into, uh, i got to say, Veep. I'm more my, my dad loves that. I'm, I've never been able to get into it. Wow, it's 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 darker. It's <laughs> it's harsher. It's less uplifting. It's all yeah, West Wing is too Clintonian. You know, it has all the sort of I don't know the the even the uh, unbridled liberal optimism. Yeah, exactly. Even <laughs> even the sort of optimism is sort of annoyingly small ball. And I, they lost me when they invaded Kazakhstan. Yeah. That was the uh, yeah. Like prove a point. There's a lot of oh, like, they jumped the shark. Small time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How would you describe it? But what, West Wing? Yeah. West Wing, you know, is, is sort of the, the liberal dream of a of a president yeah. a president who somehow balances some level of muscular right. sort of values based hawkism, but at the same time has this velvet glove and and somehow also was like this genius. I mean, he was a Nobel yeah. economist, yeah, a Nobel yeah, economist, yeah, right. it's president. All, yeah. You know, well, all, all fiction involves a willing suspension of disbelief, I right? Think. But there's right. way too much sensitivity being exhibited like, <laughs> all across the board. In that Whereas show. Veep is is straight up. Um, Cynicism? I would say cynicism or perhaps realism right. about politics and how politics is right. conducted. And maybe we'll stand the test of time. And, and, and maybe not, trans, trans-border. It's part of our these, soft power. None of these programs approach yes, prime That's right. Yes, Mr. I've seen the show. If you ever saw it, because yeah. they were all based on real events. Mm. I mean, they were, they were as humorous as they possibly could be. But I used to watch them, and I turned to my wife and I said, "That is not fiction. I had that experience last week." But quite seriously, and they admitted afterwards that almost every episode was based on a real situation. So what I'd like what I'd like to do now is uh, I want to talk about some shelling, mm-hmm. and then I want to yeah. end with a brief discussion on. Uh, how we do or do not think about nuclear deterrent, nuclear modernization now. So let's, let, I know uh, well, Ridge has got a bit of a hard on for shelling. I, so so. <laughs> so I actually got to introduce yeah, that. That is shelling. true, that is true. I'm in, among my debts to Bob. Is you really? Is, yeah. is my, That's very cool. Um, well, I, you know, I think in, in a way you can think, I mean... So you, he, you gave him the first shelling book? What did what, you get? No, him? I introduced him to Tom Shelling. Oh, I had the Metropolitan Club. Wow, yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. that's oh, a better and, story. And uh, yeah, I, I got to know Tom through the Wolfstetter book, but I'll leave oh, it to yeah. Rich. So. Um, well, so so I mean, in a sense, I think you could say the three, at least probably the three most prominent figures of nuclear strategy are uh, Wolfstetter, Kahn, and Shelling. Do you think that's that's fair? I mean, Kahn and Wolfstetter are, are variants of more of a of um, a more similar approach, but I mean, I, I, I think Schelling is the most incisive personally. I mean, I think he 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 sort of identified the kind of the sort of the, the key aspects of the sort of deterrent relationship and the, and the way that people and sort of self interested kind of states would act under the nuclear shadow. And the thing that's so so great about Schelling, uh, one of the things that's so great about Schelling is that is that he 
has a sort of um, sort of a serenely kind of uh, almost bloodlessly uh, sort of honest and and kind of accurate conception of thinking about how people will bargain you know in in a sense in, under these conditions of threat and and, that, and what's interesting is you know we talked about the different backgrounds of the various guys Schelling came out of a, a kind of a labor economics background he was an economist and so he was thinking about okay how do people who are bargaining you know when they don't like each other yeah. uh, even implicitly how do they act and then how do you achieve some kind of a reasonably satisfactory stable satisfactory stable equilibrium out of that situation now I, I don't think he's been surpassed and I think you still you know we still see kind of shelling esque or sort of the, the kind of behavior that shelling that shelling identified um, uh, uh, today and I think we'll see it even more in the future and you know one of the another of the great things about shelling that you don't see and I think all of these guys actually there's there's almost no footnotes in a shelling yeah. book you know there's no yeah. fear I mean to me I, I love to throw footnotes you know discursive footnotes or to exhibit my modest learning but shelling you know, it, it's all there. It's it's clear, precise. He's not hiding behind anything. Well, and no equations. And no equations. Which I mean, there are a few really equations. And yeah. Stuff. yeah, exactly. It's this well, is stuff that he says that he, basically because that's the thing about nuclear strategy is by its very nature it should be accessible to anybody because it's basic human behavior in society. It's competitive behavior well, in all social strategy. Exactly. Mm. And he's saying I don't. You know, it's an absurdity that people would say that they need to hide behind equations or something because. It's obvious. I mean, obviously, equations are appropriate when you're thinking about it. And they can be very important. Yeah. They can be, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, of they course. They can be, but that's but part not of this American quantum system. Yeah, it's just, just ridiculous. And actually, Shell in, you know, in, in the background. But you know, a couple yeah. of things struck me about what you just yeah. said. Yeah. One is he came out of this sort of labor economics background, yeah. sort of collective bargaining, right? right? Which is about how both sides can come out as exactly. winners. Even when they're, they don't even like though they feel they've right. lost, each side has felt right. it's lost something, didn't get everything it right. wanted. Right. Ultimately. Both are, both see themselves as winners, and and I think the second thing about um, Schelling that is, is 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 I don't know his 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 playfulness. Yeah, right. He's willing to engage yeah. in so many different subjects. I remember my first job out of graduate school. I worked at the Kennedy School, yeah. and but Ernest's playfulness, Ernest's playfulness. Yeah. But he had set up the thing on um, Institute for Smoking Behavior and Public right. Policy right. because he had been a chain smoker and he was fascinated by this question of why is it so hard to quit and yeah. he wasn't convinced it was just sort of physiological reasons so I love I love that about him so he, he I, I had limited interactions so in the 80s but the third thing is are there any nuclear strategists left is it is that as a as a discipline did it end in the 80s? Did it end with the Cold War? There's no point in thinking about nuclear strategy anymore? Is it all Some of those guys are still around and still, yeah. you know, Laurie Friedman. Uh, he, wrote, he, he was more of a historian, yeah. But he, he wrote a book on deterrence. He's written on nuclear deterrence. Yeah, but I don't think it's but, 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 see, but, but is it as a, as a discipline? Is it still, is nuclear strategy still worth pursuing? Or all the fundamental questions basically have been answered well, well, and now it's all operational? I, I'd expand the question and maybe Dr. Orman could add, add to this, but the problem is that just, um, nu not just nuclear strategists, which could come from diverse backgrounds ranging from, you know, physics, economics, business, Etc. But also nuclear the scientists who work in that field. Um, I was when when I was over at uh, the National Nuclear Test. Well, what, what's it called now today? The National National Security National Test Site. Yeah. But I, I met I, I spent time with mm. uh, Stephen Younger, or right that's his name. Yeah, I, yeah, who yeah, runs yeah. it or used to run it, and he was talking about how you know 
computer simulations can only tell you so much. Absolutely. When you're, when you're constructing a device, there's something about the way the glue sets, for example, which you cannot teach someone. You, uh, uh, you actually have to show it. They have to feel it. You have to know how to do it. And so, you know, to, I mean, this is maybe preemptively pivoting the, the modern you innovation are, thing. You are touching on a subject which is very close to my heart. But <laughs> Exactly. So I'm teeing it up. This is called in the U.S. a softball. But, um, uh, you know, but these are issues where, you know, this, there's a technical expertise that computers cannot you know, account for, simulate, these sort of things, the actual design of the devices. And it seems you're someone who's very much steeped in the, the actual design, the, the, the tactile. So please, I'd be curious to know your views about this sort of dying, what seems to be a dying breed of specialists. You, you've touched on something which is very close to me. Because first of all, all the theories were working during a bipolar world. And it was important then to try and avoid hostilities. No question about it. The more proliferation you get, the more uncertainty you introduce. Now, we as a nation have gone along with the Test Ban Treaty. We have allowed our capabilities and our expertise to decay to an extent that I believe if the government now said they wanted a modernised design, it would take 10 years before they could start to get towards it. Because all those that designed... You mean the U.S. government? U.S. government. Okay, okay. No, I'm not talking about the U.K. Okay, the just, just wanted to clarify. Yes. <laughs> I'm, I'm speaking as an American now. I'm speaking as an American now. Despite the accent. <laughs> that you no longer have the people that actually designed these systems. Right, right, right. They've retired or they've left out of the solution. Because they're not being challenged when, to do new things. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. When I was working in the nuclear weapons game, you had people who came on and did some original research, then they got into the development of the next system, they put that system into production, they worked with the production engineers, mm -hmm. and some of them went on for the maintenance of the stockpile. So you had this continuity while new fellows came in, the experienced hands were there to help them with the next development and so on and so forth. A sort of apprenticeship. Absolutely. And you're so right when you say now you've got people running these computer programs who do not understand the design. You can, you can read about it in as many papers as you like, but there's, there's an art Right. To it, as well as the science. Can I? Yeah, I'm going to press you on this though. No, I was going to answer your strategy question. Yep. I was going to ask you. I was going to answer because uh, I think no, that's we a great question. Five, five minutes left. Yeah, uh, uh, keep uh, it under five minutes. Yeah, a, gr a great, a great question. I mean, that's as long as a nuclear war would last. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think the, the, the key, okay. a lot of the key issues have been identified, right? I mean, but you know, in some sense, a lot of the key issues in political theory or moral theory were identified by Plato and Aristotle in you know, 2005, but people still find interesting things to say about them. But what I think is interesting about nuclear strategy, and you know what, what I was kind of jokingly referring to in the beginning, that the Cold War with the sort of good old days, is to say a lot of the key insights, the sort of the sort of conceptual general insights, were were developed and, and achieved during the Cold War when when a, when a number of brilliant people came together in a community and were sort of talking about these things. Where these things but were surfaced. An enormous change now. Right, but but, but, but just to finish. 
I think that that we are we are presented as always in international politics with a new set of particular circumstances. And one of the such sort of fascinating things about strategy is that you know to quote the kind of Clausewitz slash Churchill or whoever it was that victory is never final. Clausewitz slash Churchill or whoever you know or the Feng Shui handbook depending. Um, the 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 basic the you know the basic question the the, the basic the, the general points can be observed and and elucidated. But it's the particular questions, and I think it rises above what you referred to, Bill, not uncharitably, but I think just in passing, as a sort of operational questions. But it's, what does the rise of China mean? How is that handled? What kind of military requirements does that, does that impose on us? What posture does it require? If Iran gets a nuclear weapon, what does that entail? And those are questions that a Schelling or a Khan or a Woolsetter can kind of set the, can set the boundaries, the parameters for how you think about it, but it's always... It's always new well, because I human think, beings' strategies adapt. And I think that's just to just to interject for a second. There, it's an important point. Is we're not just talking about some sort of game theory, watered yeah. down or otherwise. Is we're talking about countries that make decisions on exactly. what they're going to do militarily, very different than the Soviet Union did, right. very different than yeah. we did. We still don't really understand why China declared an air defense identification Fine. zone the other week. So, how are we going to understand when and where they would deploy nuclear weapons? But for the example? other major changes. The others that were dealing with strategy and, and concepts were all dealing with nuclear offense. They're, since Reagan introduced defense, it's another factor which really hasn't been taken into account by so many of the strategists. Because nuclear defense, or ABM defense, is really an adjunct to to nuclear deterrence. Well, and it's something that isn't taken into account these days sufficiently. Bob just scooched forward on the edge of his seat. He's got something yeah, yeah, very I, excited. I'd I agree, <laughs> I, I agree with Dr. Roman says about the relation between nuclear offense and nuclear defense. Reagan also uh, was part of a larger process of, of putting forward um, what, what was called in the 70s near-zero miss capabilities, but basically precision. Correct. And precision has also really changed the game and complicated. In some ways, when, before precision, um, life was actually a lot simpler because it, it made the idea of a conventional war even less likely. Um, but now with precision, I mean, it was just in Japan. Uh, the Japanese are deeply worried about China's growing uh, accurate arsenal of ballistic and cruise missiles. Of course. And they are completely vulnerable. So, by the way, largely our military forces, the Seventh Fleet, Yokosuka, yeah. um, Futenma, and Okinawa, all these, very vulnerable. We're not even we're not even beginning to cope with the issues of dispersal. So that's why I'm right. saying there's a there's a totally yeah. new strategy concept exactly. to be worked on. So, so to Bill's point, this is I think what Bill's question. This is why Albert Wolser, towards the end of the career, disliked being called a purely nuclear strategist because he appreciated the fact that he actually thought that the nuclear revolution was not the most important revolution. He came to think of it, and I, I, got, I went to Stanford, the, the, Hoover, the Hoover Institution, his archives. His argument was the biggest revolution, actually, was the information precision revolution. Hmm. Because it actually made wars fightable again. And you still have the nuclear shadow, but now you have really fightable wars. And by the way, technologies which are becoming increasingly easy for poor countries. Or so you're talking about tactical nuclear, where, where they just hit a port? No, 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 nuclear. Oh, I think, thing, yeah. I think that's right, and yeah. I think that's not just a Wolfsonian perspective, although he was obviously early to it, but I, I was talking to somebody today, and I see, in a sense, the 1973 war, the Young yeah. Per War, as an archetype they of what drones. the future is. They used they drones. They used drones, but yeah. th there was a nuclear shadow from a number of different right. directions. 
and there was a high level of conventional war, but which was which was limited. And that's right. and in a sense, my view is that I think we're going to where a nuclear where a nuclear strategy is relevant. And again, Bob, you're absolutely right. It's not just nuclear strategy; it's strategy. Is that we are going to have to think about how the nuclear shadow and how nuclear deterrence interacts with conventional deterrence and the possibility right. of conventional war and maybe even limited nuclear war. I was going to say where you're right. Yeah. The the high degree of accuracy you can get now has made conventional war far more likely right. rather than far less likely. Right. Absolutely now, right. Now we're, we're going to end this little game. Uh, all of you are going to have to describe uh, nuclear strategy in four words or less. And we'll see who has, and I'll be the judge. We'll see who has the best one. We're going to start with Bridge, since this, this whole podcast was his idea, actually. So, uh, Four words or less. Nuclear strategy. On the spot. Pre- preventing war uh, with terror. Preventing war with terror, Bob. Um, four words. Pass them to somebody else. I'm. I'm, I'm oh, so, uh, that's some copyright, Bob. All right, all right, all right. Uh, please. Okay. Yeah, right. Four yeah, words. Like, go, go. All right. Just off the top of my head, uh, war shaken, not stirred. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna go with make love, not war. Oh, oh, clap, 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 clap. These guys, it was about preventing war. No, that's true. Yeah. Sure. Not, making, not making not making love though, necessarily. Not with her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's Stanley. It's really surviving an attack. Surviving an attack. Uh, Bob had the only alcohol-themed one, so I'm just gonna. <laughs> he's the winner. So. <laughs> All right. Uh, Give, can, I, can I say one thing in closing, which is that, I, as Bob mentioned, that he and I have spent some time, with, a little bit of time with Tom Sean, and he actually said that that that, that Rand they would they would have lunch out in the courtyard, and the, the guy he really enjoyed talking to was was Khan, and they and you can just imagine like the kind of conversations that was amazing. Yeah. So you got to read the Herm, the worlds of Herman. The worlds of Herman Khan. Maybe that's Bill's, that that's Bill's Bible. One of their one of their next uh, reviews for War of the Rocks. Maybe, maybe we can append to this podcast a bibliography, a bibliography. of things that we all think people should read. Sure, I think that'd yeah. be a great idea. And can we put it on ourselves? Yeah. 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 Well, of yeah. course. That's because we, we, we do need to put it on ourselves. But we're gonna we're gonna close this one out. I think clearly what what. If we've learned anything about nuclear strategy, is that we need another podcast to discuss <laughs> nuclear strategy because there's a lot to talk about in terms of modern issues, modernization, global zero that we didn't get to. So Love thanks, you. guys, for doing this, and uh, this was a lot of fun. Thanks thank you. And uh, thank you to the Jefferson Hotel, which is okay. always a, a great host. And for those oh, of you... That's right. Now. Well, that's all right. Sorry. I no, no, no. Well, well, uh, we we right. do need to plug Stanley's book, actually. All right. Yeah, what I was going to say was I met Ryan because I've just had published... Congratulations. An uncivil civil servant, <laughs> which is available on uh, on um, Amazon. And on the front, you'll see there's a cover, uh, there's a stamp which says bullshit. Yeah. And I honestly use this throughout my career in, in the MOD, that when I got these articles and uh, position papers, which I thought really were beyond any cleaning up, I would stamp it bullshit and send it back to the originator and it's amazing how many of these were withdrawn forthwith. Hmm. I think that that might be a reflection of English culture versus America. But you got an uncivil civil servant by Stanley Orman, O-R-M-A-N. It's really interesting, uh, really interesting story that I'm actually really looking forward to reading. And uh, thanks for joining us everyone. Uh, We'll see you next time.